Well, welcome listeners to the Kuiper Collective podcast. Uh, this time I'm Jeff Fisher and I'll be your host. And we're doing something a little bit different. We are um, reading a book together as faculty, which is not an uncommon thing that we do for professional development. Um, but this year we have a unique opportunity um, because we're reading a book that has a chapter in it by one of our own faculty. We're reading together the book From Lament to Advocacy, Black Religious Education and Public Ministry. It's edited by Anne Streety Wimberly, Nathaniel West, and Annie Lockhart Gilroy, and has contributions from several authors uh, who are all uh, part of black religious education, varying from church ministry to also uh, professors of Christian education in a variety of places in Atlanta, Tulsa, Richmond, Virginia, and of course here in Grand Rapids at Kuiper College, as Reverend Dr. Rochelle White has a chapter in this book, uh, from Lament to Advocacy. And it's also a very timely book um, with all the things that are happening in the United States, particularly regarding racism. And so it's, it's fitting for us as Kuiper College. It's fitting for us at this point in history. Um, and so we want to have a, a bit of a discussion about the book. Uh, we're going to do a whole series of this. And so this first episode is looking just at the preface and the introduction, uh, which really sets up a lot of the chapters uh, and, and what's going on in the rest of the book that we'll dig into more deeply. Um, so before we get into some of the conversation about this, um, I'll make a couple disclaimers. One is that this is a conversation and that while most of us here are educators, we are actually coming from a listening posture. Um, this, is, this is where we want to actually hear from others. Um, we want to hear from those on this topic in particular. Uh, and so we're probably not going to be coming up with, and so this is what we are going to do to solve all of America's problems. Um, in fact, we won't be able to do that. Um, we can't do that. So you're gonna hear us probably raise a lot more questions than give a lot more answers, um, but I want us to dialogue about this. Uh, second disclaimer is that these, whatever we're stating on here are not the official views of Kuiper College. Um, these are our views in most cases, I will honestly admit, and I'm sure many others here will admit as well, um, that we are not only in a learning posture here, but uh, we, have, we have our own questions and we are, we are dialoguing with these things. We're, we're thinking about these things. These are not finally formed statements or views. This is, uh, this is again, this is a conversation. Um, so with all of that said, uh, I've introduced myself as uh, I'm Jeff Fisher, Associate Professor of Theological Studies at uh, Kuiper College and Academic Dean. And I would like some of our other participants to introduce themselves as well. Yeah, this is Mark Andreas. I'm Associate Professor of Business Leadership and the Program Director of Kuiper College's Business Leadership Program. Happy to be here. Hi, I'm Libby Heisinga. I am the Library Services Specialist at, here at Kuiper, but in my other work, I'm also an anti-racism educator and a regular contributor to the Antioch podcast on biblical anti-racism. Hi, I'm Michelle Norquist, Director of Library Services. So there will be others who are also participating via chat, um, and so we'll, we'll try to incorporate some of those uh, pieces into our conversation as well. I want to actually kick this off. I'm going to read a, a bit of a quote from Roman numeral pages 28 onto 29. So if, if you have your book, you can, you can pull this out, um, because this is the one that, the, a quote that directly links to uh, us. And Libby's shaking her head, so she might have also had this starred. Um, movements for change do not happen without leaders. 
Leaders are required who seek out, see, feel, and want to change the tough stuff that is happening in the community and larger society. These leaders have what is called a disruptive awareness. They may be pastors, church school or Bible study teachers, young people's group leaders, women's and men's organization heads, discipleship ministry guides, community outreach heads, and faculty in higher education and seminary who consider themselves called by God to participate in God's activity on behalf of justice. Of the reference to faculty in higher education and seminary, uh, we are leaders in the community simply by our positions. And I, I, again, I'll speak for myself. I'm sure others would, uh, would echo this. We want and we feel called by God to participate in God's activity on behalf of justice. Um, so this is really not something that's just kind of optional for us, um, but is something that we are actually called to do. And so there's, there's some responsibility um, that reading a book like this and talking about a book like this places on us. But I think we want to, uh, to take on some of that responsibility and, and see what does it mean for us, particularly as faculty and as leaders in Christian higher education. So we want to kind of highlight for us or summarize for us what the theme or what the main idea of this book is. Um, if you had to kind of encapsulate it in a few words, um, you know, we've got the subtitle, but, but how would you describe what we're at least in this introduction being told this is going to be about? Yeah, I can jump in here. I think, you know, the title of the book, From Lament to Advocacy, Black Religious Education and Public Ministry, does introduce us to that concept, Jeff. And, and this disruptive awareness is one of the areas I highlighted as well in, the, uh, in this reading of the introduction and preface. And I think this is, this is a theme to what's going on. It's helping us realize uh, understanding the lament and how significant racism is in the United States and how that's affecting so many people in our entire society. So understanding the lament side, but then turning that lament, uh, not to just a sorrowful uh, statement of, of being in that place, but turning it into advocacy and towards a biblical view of justice. And that's what I'm excited about and excited about already reading this first part of the book. Yeah. In reading this, just the introduction, I was really caught by the differences between religious education from these black leaders and the religious education I've experienced in mostly white institutions. Yes. The specificity of the advocacy was beautiful and something I didn't realize that I had been looking for. The idea that my religious education would teach me not just to care, but specifically what I could do about it, just really captured my attention. And I'm looking forward to learning more from this book. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I highlighted this, it's on page 20, Roman numeral 25, this language of justice education. Uh, and and I even marked on here, you know, this is the, the, the page starts with justice education. What is it? And I highlighted several of the key terms that are on here because they're so similar to what we have, what we wrote in our philosophy of education, um, of the kind of learning we do, except, Libby, as you just pointed out, we kind of stop short with that, that last step of like, and doing this for justice. Yes. Um, so, I mean, either of you want to say anything about, about the justice education piece? Well, something that I've done 
a fair amount of considering is um, children's ministry curriculum. Mm. And so I was bringing my considerations about that. You know, I've looked through a bunch of different curriculum and tried to figure out what's good, what should we use, what are the strengths and weaknesses of these different methods of teaching. And what I find in a lot of church curriculums is that they're very easily, they very easily turn into a, a list of, of morals you should learn. You know, you read a, a story about David and you conclude that you should be nice. And that's a, a very common weakness in, mm -hmm. in the children's ministry. Right. And trying to look for ones that are instead, how, what do we learn about who God is? How do we get into a better relationship with God when we encounter these stories? And then realizing that there was this third angle that I was entirely missing of, and how do we equip our young people to take these principles of, of love and justice that we encounter in the Bible and apply them into practical action in our lives? I had not been asking that question. And so I think justice education as something that practically teaches people to recognize the needs in their own lives and the lives around them, but then also gives them steps about, okay, now what do you do about it? Yeah. That's beautiful, Libby. Um, and I, I love this section on page 25, those same principles, because those are foundational principles we use in our business leadership program at Kuiper College. Yeah. I love this concept. This is what I try to challenge students at. And what sort of I love about this book is this helps me uh, go deeper in some of these areas I've been trying to challenge our students in. But this uh, at the top of page 25, that very justice education, I love this, uh, this quote where it says, justice education centers on understandings, critiques, and practices of the ethical standard of a just society that assures respectful treatment of people and unbiased access to benefits and opportunities that are supposed to be available for all. So it, in the business leadership program, we focus on uh, social enterprise, this triple bottom line concept of people, planet, and profit. And a lot of times that revolves around that not all people in the current situation have yeah. the and the opportunity for employment, meaningful employment, creating a business, growing a business that's actually benefiting the local community or the, or the regional area. So this is challenging. I say, well, how do we change that? So we, how do we build this? How do we, we all want benefit opportunity for all. And a lot of times in America in a mostly white community, we just kind of sit there, oh, hey, we've all got freedom. We can all do these things. Mm -hmm. But when you dig down more deeply into these communities, all communities, especially communities of color, you find that the opportunity and, and, uh, is not there uh, in the same way at all for lots of very, very important and valid reasons. And that's, that's the lamenting. We have to come to peace with that and that's what i've actually been encouraged with this very current movement uh here in the united states is that there's a lot of white people lamenting and realizing what black people and people of color have been saying for generations so there's a real lament happening here and that's what actually gives me a, an excitement of opportunity that we can come together as a larger group of people and begin to make change yeah i mean i i, I totally agree with that i mean that is big so this book obviously the way publishing happens was written long before mm -hmm. all of this stuff has has come out and yes. you know the the first thing that they're going i mean what we'll look at it next week is to talking about the first thing to do is lament and that's actually what we've been hearing and have have been participating in um with with what's going on currently in our country you know i i wanted to highlight the the summary there because we again we use a lot of these keywords 
um, justice education. So these are the bullet points on page 25, a relational component, a physical component, a psychological component, and Mark, an economic and vocational component. I mean, similar yes. to what you've been talking about with the uh, business leadership program and a spiritual component. Um, but then uh, particularly with that last one, the spiritual component centered on public spaces, networks, and activities appending in church functions for forming religious knowledge, nurturing spiritual enrichment, and empowering life practices and justice promoting competencies. Again, I mean, there's some critique that's, that's in this book, and I'm sure we're going to hit it in future chapters, that a lot of times we make this spiritual component individual and kind of stop at our own, maybe our family, our church, our, our little network, our neighborhood, our, our, you know, but not really expanding it into a just society. Um, and so I think, I mean, this is something that I'm actually really intrigued about and looking forward to in the rest of the book. I didn't um, end up highlighting anything in this section because I started highlighting and realized that I would have just underlined like or highlighted <laughs> every single line of this. <laughs> so I just have some big stars drawn instead. But I was also interested by how these, these categories were used in a different way than mm. what I've seen before. So I'll just read a physical component focused on assuring accessible and affordable resources for bodily health, insisting on safe living spaces and security in public spaces, and demanding justice following life-threatening and life-taking violence. That sounds different than fitness for life. Yeah. <laughs> that, I've, I've thought about what is a, a physical component of the spiritual life. And sometimes that involves like, you know, knowing that my body is made by God and valued by God and how do I use it and what do I do with my hands and what is the value of work? And also, am I assuring that other people have mm -hmm. access to the things they need for their bodily health? Yeah. What do I do when I think about this, the physical world of faith when I'm actually applying it to other people and not just myself? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and even that last, you know, following life threatening and life taking violence. I don't know that our education often includes that. I mean, whether it's in the church or in a Christian college where, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about that, you know, it'll be a topic in, in worldview class or something, but like realizing um, that, that this education needs not just that awareness, but really explicitly addressing the reality that there is life-threatening and life-taking violence that people have experienced. Yes, no, you're exactly right. And that's stuff we got to get serious about. And I've had the benefit in my family uh, um, of growing up, of helping my children grow up in a very multiracial church and a tabernacle community church. It's a great fit for our family because we have three black kids and four white kids. And it's again, about 50-50 black, white, Type church. And I remember being shocked several years ago when our black pastor, right from the pulpit in the middle of a sermon, used the illustration of the importance of when being pulled over by a cop to keep your hands up and not reach for your for your uh, insurance and registration papers. Right. Well, that's well, that's what I've always done or whatever. I mean, I don't even think anything to it. I reach over and that's what a cop is going to ask me for. He talked about the importance of keeping your hands on the steering wheel because of the very life-saving nature. And I, so I have to look at my black children and realize, well, they have to do that in a different way than I, than I do or my white children do. So yeah. 
that, that kind of life, you know, and so that conversation sparked some pretty interesting conversation in my family and in our church. And this was just one point of a, of a sermon illustration, but wow, did this have a, a ringing impact to, especially those of us who grew up in more white or safer neighborhoods, uh, realizing that's not the way it is for everybody. And now, unfortunately, a lot of the white community in the United States, because of the George Floyd situation, are really seeing what the, the reality, that's really true. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, hopefully you don't get pulled over too much, Mark. Um, but there is, you know, there is this sense of like, if, if, you're, if your boys see that, you know, this is what you do as it, when you get pulled over and you're reaching for it, I mean, there's a modeling that's happened there. They yeah. might not think about doing it differently until someone who has had different experiences says, actually, you got to be careful with that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, that, that's, a, that's a reality that, you know, I, I mean, I would admit I've known has been there, I know has been there, but has not really come to the forefront near as much as it has in these last few weeks. Right, right. No, that's very, very important. I, I, I got a chance to grow up in Southern California and, and the 1992 LA riots were really formative in my, uh, in my upbringing. And so having uh, friends of color who really literally lived blocks from buildings getting torched and, and what that was like, that had a huge impact on me. And I realized the, the, the incredible uh, distrust and animosity between, between people of color and the police in the United States. This wasn't, and this was not just a Los Angeles problem. Uh, this is obviously things that happened all over the United States mm -hmm. over the last, you know, decades and decades that, right, there, there's got to be an understanding of what that looks like. And so I, I try to teach this, the simple example that in my business leadership classes, that uh, when you talk about leadership and people talk about Martin Luther King and, you know, I have a dream and all that, but that, that was all preceded by a lament, right? For a decade or more, he spoke yeah. from the church, the church, to lament the Jim Crow laws, to lament the injustice. And only when the white people mostly could see on television the hoses and the dogs being turned on people, people start realizing that what he was talking about was actually true and began a movement where people came together in America. And so I see something similar just birthing now where pe white people, when I was downtown in Grand Rapids at the Juneteenth, uh, Juneteenth of March, there was more white people than black people there. And right. there people realizing we're all marching for this together. And it was, that was a powerful moment. I think this book gets into a little bit of that in, um, I have it on, oh shoot, Roman numerals, page 29. <laughs> <laughs> Good thing we can read no Roman numerals. Still. Yes. <laughs> Yes, yes. Um, that the call is not for loner leaders. This yeah. is related to the, the page on um, leadership, the need for leadership. Yes. But it describes the need for positive interdependent relationships that form the vision of justice. And I do think that part of why, why white folks haven't been involved in this is a lack of an understanding of interdependency. So you mentioned that... Jeff, you've known that black people have experienced certain things when getting pulled over by police officers, but there's this sort of sense of like, yes, but what can I even do about that? Like, right. I'm not in the car with you. What right. can I do? Right. But then when we grow our sense of interdependence, not, not this like dangerous codependency, but this <laughs> sense of like your body and your well-being matters for my very life. And that is true of people that are experiencing struggles that maybe I know and abstract that because we share this deep interdependence, I have responsibility for you. Yes. That, that, that's beautiful, Libby. That reminds me a lot of what's on page 18. Um, 
when um, they quote Mary McLeod Bethune in here, which I know um, Dr. White has been so, uh, you know, connected to and impacted by. Yeah. Page 18 says, we should therefore protest openly everything that smacks of discrimination or slander, educating children and adults for self-help and to become agents of social change was integral to her understanding of the unity of spiritual, social, and political dimensions of life guided by scripture following the life of Jesus Christ. And then talking she about Mary McLeod Bethune. Uh, and so I love that idea that we together, just like you're talking about Libby, what can we do? We're not right there. We're not as white people sometimes, you know, uh, being subjected to some of this uh, terrible discrimination or slander, right? But we can stand up vocally and protest openly everything. We can do that, do that in our classrooms. We can do that in our work. We can do that in our, on the weekends and we can do that on social media. We can be brave enough to stand up when we see injustice. We know God has a lot of strong language in the Old Testament about injustice. So we don't have to feel timid that, well, we're going to, somehow, you know, um, you know, get God upset because we're angry. No, no, actually, actually not. We want to be able to stand up strongly uh, and, and protest openly every day. I love that phrase. So something that relates to the idea of anything that even smacks of discrimination mm -hmm. or slander. Mm -hmm. um, back to the principles of what is justice education under the relational component. It's centered on persons receiving respectful, non-humiliating, and non-discriminatory attitudes and behaviors in public spaces and in everyday life. I, I have a lot of thoughts on that, but I think <laughs> of, um, there's a lot of fear and kind of reactivity that I think especially white people, no, I'll just say it, that white people experience in conversations about race because we're really afraid of being called racist as if like right. that will crush our very soul um, but it leads us to not speak up until we see the things that are like definitely discrimination or definitely bad. And mm -hmm. so we end up with this definition of racism that's only the, the tip of the iceberg of dangerous attitudes. And we disregard any of the things that are humiliating. The little, the little cuts that are killing yeah. our brothers and sisters every day. And we don't speak up about those because we're so afraid of saying, no, that wasn't racist. It, I meant it because of this. You know, we're just, we're too yeah. timid. Right. Yeah. So Libby, I don't remember in this, if it has a definition of racism, but in the other books that I'm reading, as I know you are as well, um, can, uh, and I know you guys talk about on the Antioch podcast, what's, what's the definition of racism that you, you all operate with that, you know, I think is a helpful one for us to operate with? So the, I wouldn't say there's necessarily one, but there are <laughs> principles across definitions of racism that we can share. Mm. So um, one that I like from uh, Rich Viotas is a system of advantages and disadvantages based on race. Or there's another one that's a race-based prejudice plus misuse of power by systems and institutions. So the principles of the definitions are not hatred of a person based on race. It's right. abuse of power by systems and institutions that's done in a way that uses racialized prejudice. So Personal prejudice is certainly a part of these definitions, but 
it's more of an after effect of the abusive systems rather than the primary concern. Right. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think that's a really important clarifier um, that prejudice with power and the systemic piece of it. Um, and yeah, I think, I mean, hopefully that can give us who are white um, a, a little more willingness to engage in these conversations, knowing that, well, like it or not, we've benefited from a system that is racist. Mm -hmm. So, yes. I mean, like it or not, specific or not, individual to me or not, we are complicit in racism. Okay, but we just put that out there and we acknowledge it and we admit it and we go, okay, now what do we do? Because I also want to be anti-racist. Yes. So how do I work? How do I lament? How do I listen in ways that help us move more toward that anti-racist posture? Um, just, and yeah, I, I don't want it to be where we're concerned that whatever we say is going to be labeled as racist or problematic or whatever. Um, yeah, again, in several of the other books that I'm reading right now, there's some good uh, advice on how to respond to those kind of things. And a lot of it is, especially if it's coming from people of color saying, hey, you realize that was racist, is simply to say thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you for helping me understand. Thank you for clarifying that. And I will do my best not to do that again. Yeah, I'll go think on that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's also part of the reason I want us to read and engage with this book is that it's, again, helping us listen to um, I mean, really, this is about black religious education that is, has been doing a lot of this stuff for generations. I mean, I know that's what we're going to be reading in this. And, yes. and you know, how do, we, how do we listen and learn from this to at least listen and learn so that we recognize what are the things that we've done to perpetuate systemic racism? Um, and in our particular context, I mean, we're talking about the church, but we're also talking about Christian higher education um, I, you know, I think there's, there's some things that we can learn from this. Are there other sections? Are there quotes? Are there other places that you, you know, really marked or highlighted or wanted uh, to particularly raise a question about or point as um, this is, this is really good and something that we need to hear? You know, I had one more on uh, page 14 of the introduction at the bottom. Um, and this, this reminds us of uh, what we try to talk about at Kuiper College. I love this, um, I would call multi-sphere approach here towards the bottom of page 14. Uh, the, so when they talk about there's challenges in black life, that's what this black religious education theme is talking about. It says in there towards the bottom of 14, moving forward entails taking seriously a public ministry emphasis in religious education focused on personal, sociocultural, political, and spiritual crisis. Uh, we recognize that young people especially are calling mm -hmm. for the church to speak mm -hmm. of and act out of faith that can sustain and guide them in, as they experience up close threats to their lives. So uh, you know, this, this, this education isn't just about knowledge. It's about a, a holistic worldview. Yeah. When you talk about personal, sociocultural, political, and spiritual, and it's gotta be, a, a, so that ties to what we try to talk about at Kuiper College. But then on the next page, it actually ties to current re relevance. Mm -hmm. In the middle of page 15, it says, amid, amid it all, young people are clear, as noted in such statements, quote, 
churches should discuss community situations. Talk more about the political in the community. Try to connect on a more personal level about problems we're facing in today's society. Get involved. Help us fix the problems. Try your hardest to fix the issues. So those are powerful statements that they've taken from the voices of young people that are, I think, at their heart, um, you know, this, some of the same some of the same cries that some of the people at Kuiper College are saying. But now open yourselves up to a larger world and realize right. that, like Libby said, it isn't just the individual relationship we have with someone, I'm not racist or whatever, but what's, what's going on? What's this larger socioeconomic category we've got to really address and tackle? So that's a challenge to me as a faculty member at Kuiper that I've got to make sure I'm delivering current or relevant conversations do that and continue the things like we've done at Kuiper four years ago at the presidential election to have those roundtable conversations at lunches with students about civic participation and voting and very current relevant issues that I hope we can continue to do with Aura at Labora and, and you know, inspiring leader speakers and those kind of things to make it very relevant uh, for, for the students going forward. As you're reading these statements from young people, I mean, you hear this, we hear this in class too. I mean, we hear this kind of like the, the relevance um, the need for relevance, the need for current, um, and, and I mean, as these are addressing the need for a just society, I mean, they are, they're very aware, and perhaps that's, you know, mostly because of social media and a much more globally connected society than like for when I was in college, um, but they're very aware of the problems in the world. And sometimes we all feel overwhelmed with, well, what can I as one person do? I think that's part of what this book is getting at is like, well, we're not trying to do this as one person, mm -hmm. each as loner representatives here, but we're trying to do this collectively. And that that's actually been a strength of the black community and black religious education is yes. this collective, this, you know, working together, this communal aspect that, I mean, there's all history of this, uh, that has not always been the case in the white church, which is much more individual focused and, you know, the climb to the top kind of approach. I mean, not just in the church, but in culture at, at large, but you, we certainly see it in the church as well, that this individualistic approach there. Yes. I think it's also a real, a real opportunity that we shouldn't, um, that we shouldn't skip past to, sit at the feet of black folks who have been keeping their lamps burning all this time. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, in the white church, we've been doing, we've been getting an A plus in personal piety and getting an <laughs> F in, uh, in justice uh, <laughs> to spend some time learning from people. Yeah. Who kept the work going. I think, um, I definitely have within me this uh, desire for mastery. Like I want to be able to know everything there is to know about it. And I want to be able to like, I want to get that A grade on that essay. And I want to be like top in my field on this. And I just have to accept that I am new mm -hmm. coming into this conversation that has been continued for generations, for centuries. Mm -hmm. and. I have no right, nor do I have the ability to claim mastery here and to instead sit with gratitude and humility as I learn from people who have been doing this practically for a long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very yeah. well said, Libby. And I, I would recommend 
people listening to this podcast too, there, there's great resources out there to do that, obviously more than ever before. And even if you're brand new into this, I found it um, personally refreshing just to listen to a few speeches from Dr. Martin Luther King mm -hmm. 50 years ago and his uh, speech to the mountaintop I listened to the other day that was the day before he was assassinated. Uh, you know, he's the way he and what he's talking about is incredibly relevant to the current race riots and the mm -hmm. George Floyd situation and um, Breonna Taylor and all that. So it's very relevant. And then I and then another place I'd recommend is Dr. John Perkins. So his books, yeah. um, what he's talked about, um, he's been an incredible leader that has partnered together with white folks arm in arm and with the Christian Community Development Association. They've done a lot of great work in many communities, including right here in West Michigan. So. Uh, those are a couple just starting points. There's many more, but there's ways to listen and learn. Even if you feel like, well, I'm new to this. How could I, I'm so far behind. I don't know. I could never figure this out. But there are great resources to tap into right there. Yeah, those are great suggestions. I mean, I know the Zondervan Library at Kuiper College would also be very thrilled oh. to recommend more <laughs> reading resources and other sources as well. Yes. There's an interesting thing that we have in the library. We have some, um, some pamphlets. They're things that... It, don't quite make the circulating collection. And one of them that we've kept that I think is really interesting is a, a multi-page spread in either a magazine or a newspaper that was distributed by a Christian organization um, the week after Dr. King was assassinated. Hmm. And it is against Dr. King. And it is encouraging people not to grieve for a false prophet. Wow. And you might think, why would you keep that? And the reason is, part of the job of a library isn't to tell you what to think, but to preserve history. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, in our current point in time, we say, yes, Dr. King, great. Every Christian loves him. Like, if you don't love him, you've got a problem. And we forget the fact that at the time, Dr. King was hated, especially by white Christians. And again, this is another example of people keeping their lamps burning. And yeah. we're going we're to read Dr. King and see now what we didn't see then was that he was calling us to, to accountability and truth that we were unwilling to accept at the time. Right. And I hope that allows us to engage in this conversation with some humility to say, you know, there are probably people that I say are false prophets and we shouldn't listen to them. And somebody 50 years from now is going to tell me, actually, you were wrong about that one. I think, you know, one of the things I've noted on here for a future podcast, because I assume we'll get into it then, is this connection with liberation theology Ooh. and James Cone in particular. Um, that, you know, I mean, I, I teach church history also. And so there's also this, the social gospel and social justice got conflated and liberation theology and black theology got conflated. And so then I mean, this is, again, an over, over caricature, but it, I mean, there's truth to it. So the white Protestant church just dismissed it all. Mm -hmm. Just like, well, you know, oh, that's liberation theology. We're not going to do that. Yeah. Um, we know that's bad. So I think, I mean, I'm, I'm really interested in the, the future chapters that address some of that. You know, how the black church takes pieces of liberation theology, but it's not a wholesale adoption of it at, by any means. Um, in fact, there's a lot of critique with it. So, um, you know, that's a piece that, that I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, in future sections of this. Yeah, and just as like white 
theology has a huge spectrum within it. There are also many liberation oh, yeah. theologies and many black theologies. And if we can treat them with the same respect and attention that, you know, we've historically given to the range of right. white theological ideas. Yeah. The 13 different Lutheran versions and the seven different Presbyterian and mm -hmm. the 12 different Reformed and the 800 different Baptist. Yeah. Yeah. See, I want to go to the, the, the chat here. There's a question here that I think is addressed to you and me, Mark. Um, have you found a way as white men to be vigilant about being an advocate? In other words, when there is not an outside catalyst that causes you or us to remember or take notice again of a group's plight, how do you keep on your toes and stay faithful to this calling? Is this calling of being an advocate one that permeates the extent of your Christian leadership? Um, this, is a, this is a good question. It's a hard question. Uh, I mean, it kind of presumes that, yes, I am continually an advocate, even when this stuff isn't presented in front of me externally, which I, I'm not sure I can honestly say. So, I mean, Mark, do you have some thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, I, I, the topic of diversity has been important to me my whole life. And uh, that's a very fair question to ask. And I think a lot of people, if you live in a mostly monoculture um, you know, uh, neighborhood or life, whether that's black or white or Hispanic mm -hmm. or Asian or whatever, um, right, you're largely going to, you can easily, that this will fall and, and fall off your radar. So for me, I've found uh, two sources. One clearly is Revelation 7, you know, just looking yeah. at what is what is the kingdom going to look like someday? So if I, I'm a mm. Enneagram one and I, I want to see us moving towards, I'm a reformer, I want to push towards that future. That's the, that's the picture. That's the vision of what that is. And so the multicultural, amazing uh, you know, new heaven and new earth that we're going to have someday. So that's number one. But then number two is when I put myself in a church or in a school uh, when, where there's a lot of diversity and celebrating that diversity, then that is constantly in front of me. And so then I uh, do that. And when I was at Bethany Christian services, you know, putting goals in front of us that we want to achieve certain, certain standards and, you know, of uh, multicultural education and uh, employment and things like that. So trying to set those targets. So there's reasons too, to, mm -hmm. to stay. Yeah. I mean, I, I really echo the, the theological piece of, you know, I do the image of God stuff. I mean, the diversity is embedded in the image of God. God himself mm -hmm. as triune is diverse. And so it should not be surprising to us at all that God created a diversity of people. Um, and then obviously, I mean, uh, you know, I have a whole biblical theology of racial reconciliation and diversity. I mean, you see this theme throughout scripture. So, I mean, I guess in that sense, I'm, I'm constantly advocating for the diversity aspect of um, everyone having dignity in the image of God, the worth of people, no matter what their background, race, color, you know, sometimes I, I feel like, well, that's, that's kind of the, that's the surface level. But then actually, that's actually, you know, the foundational level. Yeah. That if we don't have that theological foundation, a lot of the stuff that we build on top of it doesn't really amount to anything. And then I think we need to take that theological foundation and transform it into an associated practice. Yeah. Um, of of looking out, of, of looking around. Um, so I think of Dr. King saying that Christ was crucified, not just by human badness, but by human blindness. Mm. And he brings that to a point of saying that Christians have a moral obligation to educate themselves about the experiences of other people. Mm. Because 
we know that injustice is happening out there, at least in the abstract. Right. And so to remind ourselves that just because nobody's told me a story this week, or there hasn't been a major news story this month, that it doesn't mean it's not happening. Mm -hmm. And so to be people that don't just wait for those stories to come to us, but to look for them actively, and to remember that seeking out the perspectives and the experiences of other people is a mandatory part of our Christian calling. Yeah. Well, and I think, I mean, so far from what I'm seeing here, this again seems to be a strength of black religious education is what you're talking about of this, having something that's foundational and then a practice. And it, particularly what this book is about, a societal impact that mm -hmm. is connected to it, not just theory, um, but that there's actually things that are put into practice, which is, I mean, one of the things we, we value and pride at Kuiper College, that we aren't just an ivory tower institution, but we really do emphasize praxis and practical application and all of those kind of things. Um, so, I mean, that's again where I think this book has a lot to teach us yes. and a lot to help us along that way. And I do think that uh, white theological education has done a great job of um, applying things like theological anthropology on a kind of a relational or one-to-one -one level. So the Christ in me can see the Christ in you and I will treat you with dignity and respect because I know that you are a beloved child of God. But I think we're being challenged to also apply that to systems. Yes. Like people tend to struggle for, with a system blindness that we think of things very individually and yes. ignore the history and the system at play. So I think what we're being called to do is take our theological anthropology and apply it to systems as well. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's especially what I've appreciated about Jamar Tisby's Color of Compromise mm -hmm. is walking through some of this history. I mean, again, I'm, I've known a lot of this stuff. I mean, a lot's not new, but as it's their specific stories and as it's kind of pieced together with this thread and this lens, it's just been really eye-opening to me and really helpful. Uh, with this introduction, there's this one, well, here's what this chapter is going to talk about, and here's what this chapter is going to be talking about. And a few of these do have these historical uh, elements of like, here's, here's what has happened, and here are this, the real stories of real people. Yeah, I think what we're also doing here is we're building our cloud of witnesses. Yeah. Of the people that inspire us and lead us forward in the faith. It's not just, you know, Paul and the apostles. It's also you know, black Christians throughout the history of the United States who have seen the image of God in themselves and advocated for that in the world around them. And we're being asked to enter them into our cloud as well. Yeah. And it's not just John Calvin and Abraham Kuyper mm -hmm. as well, you know, but we're listening to other voices. So any of the sections, as you read the introduction and the preface that highlights what's going to be in the book, um, were there any's that you like start of, or put like, ooh, I can't wait for this. I'm really looking forward to this. I have, I have one that I, uh, other than Rochelle's, I mean, of course, we all want to yes. read Rochelle's engage with yes. it. Um, but I have one that I, I put this, I want to read. I, I marked the one about Sarah Farmer. I uh, got a real heart for transformation. And uh, she writes in here towards the end on, I guess, Roman numeral mm -hmm. nine in the preface that religious education is not just about information but about <laughs> transformation of people and the world and so she's using uh, the lens of prison looking at the prison re reformation movement and you know uh, so that that's something that i think is a beautiful going to be a beautiful story and definitely ties to systems because our criminal justice system has definitely 
than one where there's very clearly systemic racism. So I'm excited to look forward to reading that chapter. I have, I have what you just read like circled and I have a note in the margin that's like this, yeah, this is what I want to read. Yeah, and I think it'll, this will be a good one, you know, because Professor Andrew Zwart is teaching in the prisons in, and, you know, it'll be good for the podcast on that and we talk about what's going on there. And again, I mean, like police brutality is what's in the news right now, but this was all written by people long before this was a conversation that's at the national level right now. I'm looking forward to uh, chapter five by Nancy Lynn Westfield on um, religious education and womanist formation, mothering mm. and the reinterpretation of body politics. Mm. If you know me, you know that I love womanist theology. So yeah. I'm just excited I mean, about that. It was, it was also um, enlightening to me, intriguing to me that even in this preface and introduction, how much women's voices in black religious education, how significant that has been. And again, I mean, that just, it, it feels like a history that I didn't get to know. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't get, and I teach history now. So my future students are, are going to get to know this. I didn't get to know how substantial black female voices were in the development of of the American church. And I mean, that, that just, it, it feels really unfortunate to me um, that it is a corrective that I want to make. And we often tend to take the, the black women who are icons of resistance and, um, and simplify them. Mm -hmm. So the classic case of that is Rosa Parks where we turn her into a, a little old lady who decided one day <laughs> that she was fed up when in fact she was a long-term organizer and the uh the bus boycott was a planned moment of strategy that right. she had been working toward for right. years right and so i wonder how many other women we're going to encounter in this book that maybe we've heard their names before but in a sort of simplified or belittled way that's a good point well next week we're going to be doing chapter one, um, which again, I mean, just really fits with where we are. It's introducing this idea of the need for lament um, and that really we start with lament, uh, lamenting, and I'm sure we're gonna read much more about uh, the situations that cause us to lament. Um, and so I, again, I appreciate both of you for this conversation. Um, thank you for your time discussing this and, and we'll dig more into each of these chapters as we go. Any, any last words from either one of you as we wrap up the podcast? Just a thanks for including and inviting all of us as faculty. And it's so great to be talking about such a current and relevant and such important topic. So thanks for organizing this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm looking forward to continuing to learn alongside all of you. I, I really want this to be a posture of learning. I mean, I'm a five on the Enneagram and a learner in a, the uh, strengths finder. So that's why I'm reading five books at the same time. Um, but I, I, to me, it's, a, it's, it's really important for us to listen and learn. So I, I appreciate everyone's involvement and look forward to more conversations on this.